Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. And welcome back. Uh, we are once again ready to talk about modern mobility. Joining me again, uh, as always, uh, is uh, Oliver Bruce. How are you doing, Oliver? Very well, thanks. How are you doing? You know, it's funny. We always start by saying where we are because we're often, you know, at, 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 in different uh, parts of the world. And today I'm actually in, in Germany. I'm actually crossing uh, the European continent. You know, when I was thinking about our last conversation, I was in Spain and, and we touched on this question of uh, how far do we travel? And now I'm on a 2,000 mile journey. It's very rare. In fact, it used to be more common that people in the 20th century would take trips, long distance trips on by car. The idea of a cross-country trip, cross-continental trip was, was becoming popular in the 50s. It began <coughs> in the 20th century um, with the availability of, of, of good roads, the ability to make sure that you're not going to get, um, you know, your vehicle is not going to get stuck, which was a, a problem for motor vehicles. The Romans had a road network that uh, spanned the entirety of their empire, which meant all the way from Scotland to, to Jerusalem. And the road network of the Romans is, is famous because it allowed it allowed their armies to quickly deploy. Um, in fact, the, the military was one of the early uh, reasons for building uh, g- good road networks. But um, what I wanted to touch on, uh, I, I think for a show about modern mobility, we're actually really talking a lot about ancient mobility. Yeah, certainly. I, I always like to think about how our cities are built and how, and how cities that were built during the time when the predominant mode of transport was was walking uh, versus the, the predominant mode of transport being the automobile, like a lot of yep. American cities or, or New Zealand, Australia cities. I love that kind of the way that a lot of the old cities were built was um, th- that's the thing that all the hipsters love nowadays, you know. <laughs> Walkability. You yeah. know, it's, it's, it's important to, to, you know, this is what we're trying to also dig into here. I'm trying struggling with how to begin this, but because it's such an interesting story because the automobile is only a century or so of our history, and, and we've had thousands of centuries of history before that. Um, so predominantly, we traveled on foot. Now, now some people used animals for assistance, but it was, it was very rare that you would actually use a horse to, to, to ride on it, typically pull the wagon, um, if, that, if you were lucky and you were able to do that. But, you know, ancient man just traveled on foot. And, uh, you know, walking is a is the same speed today as it always was. We haven't really started to walk any faster. And so the speed, it's about 3.5 miles an hour, and it's, it's been consistent uh, forever. Um, what, what's interesting about that is how far can you go within a certain time? So if you're, again, as I was saying, traveling long distance across country, it's a new phenomenon because it was so difficult. It was difficult because of roads. It was difficult because it took a long time. It was difficult because also you may have all kinds of dangers along the way. It was far easier to travel on the sea. So once we had ships and, and navigation, uh, it opened up all kinds of possibilities for trade and commerce. 
but overland routes were very, very challenging. Now, one observation that um, a researcher named Marchetti made by looking at ancient mobility is that it seemed that um, people in the ancient world traveled the same amount of time as they do today, meaning that there was a budget of, in terms of time and that uh, we tended not to spend our lives in transit. We prefer to spend our lives in one place and transit between places um, only a couple of times a day and that the, the budget, therefore, of travel time was fixed. This budget he estimates to be about one hour a day. So one out of 24 hours a day were happy or tolerant to spend in transit. And this is something that he observed that was true historically. So by serving people across the world today, or when he was doing it, which I think was in the 70s, and looking at surveys done prior to the 70s and the 50s and 60s, and he also looked at other countries in the world and other parts of the world which were not necessarily wealthy. And they were all spending one hour a day in transit. It didn't matter if you're poor or rich. It didn't matter if you were in a city or in the country. It didn't matter if you were, you know, today or a hundred years ago or even a thousand years ago. So this is the invariance of travel time. It was, it was a remarkable Discovery, and I think actually it's still debated to this day, uh, you know, whether it actually exists, but Marchetti's constant, which is how it came to be known, is this uh, one-hour budget of time in travel. And because it's so powerful, um, there are a couple of corollaries, a couple of implications. One, if you are giving someone a new mode of transport, a new vehicle type, let's say, or you build infrastructure that permits existing vehicles to go faster, it, it doesn't change the amount of time spent. If you had a flying car, you're still going to spend an hour in it if you, versus if you had uh, only walking or a horse and you still spend an hour with, with that mode. And so that, that determines the radius. You're going to span a certain distance in, in, in terms of a daily budget. And that means that ancient cities, because they only had walking, that meant that an ancient city had a radius of a half an hour's walk, right? Because if you have an hour budget, you go out one, one half hour and back another half hour. And so if you look at, at, at maps of ancient cities and measure the diameter, it's about um, half an hour's walking time. And certainly not much larger and people didn't traverse the whole city every single yeah, time. Yeah, I was going to say, you wouldn't traverse the whole city on a, at, a given, at a given period. Oh, I was just going to ask, is that at one hour of travel time where attention is required? Because the thing that I think about is, would I be willing to sit in a vehicle if I was going to be able to be productive? So whether or not trains, for example, and the fact that you could hop on a train, but then you weren't actually focusing your attention while you were in that form of transport, whether or not that changes my kidneys considerable. I, I suspect it would, because I think the reason there's a budget is because we, we don't want to tolerate loss of productivity. We got to get something done and that doing is done in a fixed location. We're also not tolerant of the energy required. Uh, walking was tiring and it consumed a lot of our caloric uh, energy. There are many factors which you could, uh, um, you could imply in this constant as to why we have a limit. And uh, so today you might, you might see many communities in the world, like in Tokyo, Japan, where people commute far longer than half an hour. 
on average, and, and they make it more palatable by doing something during that commute. So if you are on transit, you're able to read, you're able to listen to music, you're able to perhaps do some work. The, the, the whole question of whether we can offset some of the costs and pain associated with travel by making it more productive time, that is a critical question. I think it's the one solution that uh, it, autonomy um, is offering is that we can make that time in the car more productive. But again, if you were to look at transit, it doesn't really change that much. They'll tolerate a slightly longer journey because it's less taxing on the mind, but it's still not something people are keen to prolong. And, and this is why I think Marchetti's concept may have some margin of error that con conveniences of the transport can, can uh, you sort of take the edge off. But it's still an interesting observation that we have this invariance over so many millennia, again, spanning far before the car and across multiple forms of transit. When you give people speed, they don't tend to go shorter trips. If you say, I can give you a car that travels 200 miles an hour, then you'll choose to live 100 miles from your destination because you have a budget of a half hour and you don't want to go over it, but you also don't want to go under it, which is a fascinating idea that when we got the car, we didn't just shorten our journey times. In many cases, we actually lengthened our journey times. Again, because the pain of transport was a little bit less on our physical labors. And so we instead moved further away. The, the, the implication of this budget is not that it's a maximum, but it's also that it's a minimum. If you give someone, like I said, a, a flying car, then they'll just choose to live 200 miles away from work. And why would you do that? And this is one of the paradoxes of induced traffic and other forms of behavior that we've seen with the advent of more powerful transportation methods, is that we actually want to spread further apart as opposed to come closer. So what's the benefit of being far away from everyone else? Well, obviously, you know, one of the jokes I have is that the car has two jobs to be done. First job is to bring people closer together, which is why you use it to get to work and, and, and come close to others. And the second job is to put people further apart and that it does both jobs really, really well and that we have both of those jobs so we want to be living in a sort of isolation on, on a, on a <laughs> you know, in this, this sort of idyllic castle in a, in a mountain. Um, and then we want to also be together with others. And we want to do that instantaneously. We want to flip between these two modes as quickly as possible. And that's what a, a vehicle lets you do and why it's so beloved as, as, a, as an object of freedom because it allows you to switch between two modes which are diametrically opposed. So that, that's one of the ways to think about cars as, as a kind of this magical device that gives you the ability to be both close to someone else and far away from anyone else. But when, when, when you use Marchetti's constant theory, then when you throw modes at the problem and you say, okay, if we're going to give people faster vehicles, what you end up with is, is having to consume more land because you end up with, with sprawl. And then the converse of that is, let's take away a mode. And what's the implication? If you take away a mode that allows you to go fast, then people will come, come to live closer together and you use less land. So actually, it's a fascinating, powerful tool, right? You can just dial this in and out. Of course, these things may lag and you may take decades to make changes to the way people live. But believe me, they will change. If you took away the car, 
people will have to, and, and certainly cities will change uh, to accommodate uh, a higher density. Um, real estate uh, pricing will be impacted, infrastructure will be impacted, energy use will be in impacted, everything. You know, the car is, is a miracle, but the car is a, is a fairly new thing and it may not be around forever. Um, and, and so as a result, we can expect the cities to also change. The idea that you, you're, you're talking about is um, there's, a, there's a parallel for this in, in um, energy efficiency, and it's called the Jevons Paradox. And it talks about the fact that um, when technology increases the efficiency of a technology, like increases the energy efficiency of a technology, you'd think, oh, great, well, we're going to have a reduction in the amount of energies that's used for something. But actually mm -hmm. what ends up happening is that you just, you end up with just as much. We just end up maximizing the new efficiency, but actually resulting in us using more um, Exactly. More yeah. And there's a similar phenomenon observed in traffic. If you create wider roads and you expand the road network, it fills up with more traffic. And so that's the notion of induced traffic. It's one of the most uh, fundamental laws of, of road design is that development of infrastructure induces or creates its own demand. Um, the case in point, and this is one of the more famous ones, is how the Long Island um, expressway in New York, which connects Manhattan to the rest of Long Island. In the early years, traffic was a constraint uh, on Long Island, and the expressway was developed. And first day of its opening, it was jammed and has stayed <laughs> uh, congested ever since. Um, and I'm sure if you doubled it, it would still be congested. Just more people would choose to move out of the city into the countryside. And I don't know how to frame it better than that because of this behavior of of humans around resources that's very, very consistent, right? Whether it's energy, uh, uh, speed, or uh, capacity for uh, transport. And so it, it, this, this is important for, to, for our discussion because the, the project of creating uh, mobility options, the idea of creating new vehicles, creating new modes, um, it, 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 if you take into account Marchetti's constant, you have to see it as either enabling a distance or enabling time and, and, or, or taking it away and then as a result changing the, the way we live. I think the implications of it are so profound. Again, can, you, yeah, can you unpack that? So enabling distance and time, what do you mean by, what do you mean by that as it relates to, to micromobility here? Yeah, so we have a phenomenon underway right now in the U.S. where the proliferation of scooters in urban areas of the United States has kicked off as of about six months ago and now just causing overwhelming uh, adoption and, and disruption. So if, if, we, if someone listening doesn't know what these are, is, is a two-wheeled two -wheeled vehicle with, with one wheel uh, in front of the other, similar to a, a bicycle, but the wheels are quite small, so, you know, 10 to 15 centimeters or 6 to 8 inches in diameter. And the wheels, uh, and there's a board in between the wheels and there's a handlebar. So something like the old Razor scooter, which was a fad in the early 2000s, but these are slightly bigger. Um, they're electrified, uh, meaning they have electric motor and battery, and they have a thumb throttle. Now, these scooters... What's the impact? It seems almost trivial. Um, sure, why not have some scooters that people can hop on and hop off? Um, but it, it, as a result, 
the implication isn't that they'll substitute something else because right now the only thing they could substitute is walking. And people didn't walk all that much. And this started in Santa Monica, California. So there wasn't a lot of walking going on in Los Angeles. But you'd have people driving to, to a, a, a town like Santa Monica and do, doing a few things by walking around and, um, and then get back in their cars and go elsewhere. So uh, if radius of walking was only about half a mile, you know, you'd have to get in the car and, and, and move to a different destination. So you'd eat lunch and then you'd go somewhere else for, for dessert by getting in your car. Um, so the thing is that once you introduce the scooter into Santa Monica, what happens is people start doing things with it that no one was doing before. What trips do people with scooters take that they wouldn't have taken otherwise? And that's the induction of trip demand. So what you've created is the opportunity for someone to bring their car into Santa Monica and then do three things and four different things they wouldn't have done before. They'll run errands, they'll visit people, they'll go on dates, they'll do things on this vehicle that they wouldn't have ever dreamed of doing. And so that's you know, the creation of new demand and therefore the creation of new trips and the creation of uh, opportunity is what, what a disruptive force like a scooter in, a, in an urban environment can do. So the trip that was taken uh, that wouldn't have been taken. However, and this is, this is a, the sort of the caveat is that maybe it cannot uh, span all the distances that people would like to travel, um, and that if you introduce the vehicle with even more power and more range, they would be able to go even further. And so at that point, they might bring their car to Santa Monica and then use this new vehicle, let's call it a, you know, like a Segway, and then travel down the coast and, you know, go to work or visit, you know, something further uh, north, uh, go up into the hills, all kinds of things that uh, normally would do with a car, but the car being stuck in traffic would have never been hired to do the job anyway. So the scooter is, is enabling uh, a certain number of things, but perhaps other modes uh, as yet un untested would enable even more distances. And at some point, the car itself becomes less and less relevant. It's like the other analogy I can throw out there is like when you got your iPhone, you're, you, you didn't think that you know, early on 2007 that we would be doing the things with it that we ended up doing. So it induced Snapchat, it induced uh, a lot of Facebook usage, it induced a lot of Twitter and, and social media and, and hundreds of other behaviors and certain types of I, games and genres and so on. Yeah, I'd add Uber to that because the, the being able to match a rider with a driver um, previously was like a tricky coordination problem. And so as a result, like you never, you know, to, to call up somebody and um, have them send a taxi around and you, you never quite knew when it was going to be there. The, 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 and they might turn up oh, absolutely. at the time. So I, I, there's I, all of a sudden, you know, like a whole whole bunch of stuff that's enabled there. I want to just go back to something that you said before. So this idea of um, distance and, and, and the idea that maybe you'd be able to unlock a whole new set of um, behaviors. Because what you're saying is, like, I get it. Um, I think, but it's not only the scooter. It's the business model that sits around it. So if I think about it, it's like scooters have existed for a long time. And I, you know, I remember... Uh, probably about five years ago, watching someone drive into kind of near a city in New Zealand and, and they parked up on the side of the road where the parking was cheap and then they pulled a scooter out of the car and then they scooted, you know, the, the last 15, you know, the last 15 yep. minutes to work. 
but what what I kind of see as an innovation here isn't the scooter. I mean, the scooter is important, yes, but it's actually the idea that you don't need to hold on to the scooter because that's one of the things that I thought about a lot when the Segway came out was, oh, this is really cool, but it's a real pain in the butt if you you know you if you end up having to go and take it on the subway. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. not it's not actually a functional. Actually, um, that, that's a great story. The Segway. Because uh, it came out, what, what year was it, 2002 or something like yeah. that? Um, and, and it seemed to have completely failed. Uh, and, and the point about scooters isn't the invention of the scooter, it's the invention of a scooter system, uh, sort of the, the way that the, the scooter is deployed and the way it's, that it's, it's possible now to, uh, to use it as a shared vehicle. And that is indeed enabled by phones and indeed enabled by networks of, of uh, cell phones. Uh, and the software and everything else. So it's sitting on on piles and piles of enabling technologies. Um, and and so when the Segway came out, it was not possible to do any of those things, like sharing and creating networks of Segways. But had those been possible, we may have seen a different outcome. The, 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 in, the thing about the Segway, I remember this very well, because I was super excited when I saw that product. And I love the, the argument that the, at the time it was made by its founder and, and, and inventor was that this is going to rebuild cities and because cities are built and shaped by transport means or, or modes. And, and that was like absolutely true. Yes, that was true back then and it's true today. And so why wouldn't it work? I mean, this is a kind of a great case study. Uh, well, firstly, the issue with the Segway was that uh, as you said, um, it's bulky in terms of being able to take it with you. It, it, it uh, is too heavy to lift. It's hard to park if when you're done, you've got to secure it somehow. It's sort of suffered from the same issues that cycling had. Uh, it's not really very small and, and tidy package. But the second thing was that because it was motorized, it, it, it had no natural... Uh, path or road or infrastructure for it. It, it. it had to exist within the sidewalk or it had to exist on the roads. And, it, it, you know, the sidewalk was walking speed. Uh, and, 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 and cities were reluctant to permit that vehicle on sidewalks. Um, it, it found a niche in malls, interestingly enough, as, as kind of the mall... <laughs> <laughs> Paul Blatt, mall cop, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the mall cop, yeah, that's that's, that's that became kind of a, a punchline on on a, on a joke. But but it it it's it sort of uh, you see how it struggled to find a a particular place of the infrastructure. So it needed to have its own built, and then that would was not going to happen quickly. Also on the roads, it was it was difficult to approve that for for road use safety and you had to wear a helmet and it sort of became a competitor with motorcycles and things like that. Um, so what's changed? I think that, you know, the, actually, the, the, curiously, the company Segway was acquired by the same company that today supplies most of the scooters that we see on the road. Um, the self-balancing aspect and the fact that the wheels were in parallel to one another wasn't that big of a draw. Um, having the, the wheels in tandem, meaning one in front of the other, as scooters have, seems to be good enough. Most people know how to balance on that, on that, uh, on that vehicle. The Segway offered this remarkable sort of ability to self-balance, and, and it was very intuitive. It has the analogy was standing and then sort of moving while standing. Well, scooters do pretty much the same thing, and they were good enough. And that's the thing, that scooters are good enough, uh, whereas the Segway seemed to over-serve on that dimension. 
But fundamentally, I think the thing that hurt the Segway was timing and, and the idea of having a small electric motor injected into a, a small wheeled vehicle was sound, but it, it was engineered to such a degree that it became uh, uh, the wrong configuration at the wrong time. And today, it might not even make that much sense because we do know how to do micromobility with different form factors. But the electric motor was a sound idea, and the electric motor and battery pack in a small vehicle are still today uh, the, the enablers for micromobility. So um, th this is why the devil's in the details. I think that the difference between um, yesterday and today, you know, 15 years have passed or so, is that we have sharing, we have the ability to do on-demand transport and that the vehicle itself is not the object of the business model. It's the network that's the business model. And that's firstly. And secondly, uh, costs have come down. These vehicles are super, super cheap. Batteries have become so much better. Uh, weights have come down as well because we've gone to lithium technology. And so these enablers are all starting to come together, right? Networks, batteries, motors, and um, business models as, as and, you know, tying it all together and suddenly, boom, it actually seems to make sense in a lot of contexts. Um, so, you know, this is what we try to do here is explore the implications. Overarching, again, this, the same, you know, understanding human behavior, understanding demand and supply of, of transportation is going to allow us to think through how this is going to play out. I found it fascinating watching, as you say, Ninebot, um, which which bought Segway, because the, the, the latest stuff that they've been doing with the Segway, so they still make a Segway-style version of, of the transporter, but it's way, you know, it's way, way smaller. And they're just, they're selling at the moment uh, kind of a, a beta version of uh, the, the really small Segway that it doesn't have the stem, it just has the, the kind of the foot platform. Um, but the interesting thing that they developed now in it, um, and, and the, the, they've just released it for sale, is is a self-driving version of the Segway. Hmm. And I was thinking through the implications of that and thinking, okay, if you've got scooters, which until now there's a, there's a problem around tragedy of the commons especially if they're not permitted um some cities will be able to solve for that but others won't but also as well just the kind of a coordination problem of being able to get a scooter right where you need it um for a consumer who wants yeah, to be able to use it yeah the balancing problem yeah so so that's yeah. right that's right uh, this is yeah so this is the next uh, question in terms of breakthrough we need it is that vehicles that are in the shared mode sometimes need to move themselves because or need to be moved uh, today they are moved uh, by someone but they need to sort of reconfigure themselves as a as a uh, as a robot would kind of being where it need where it, where it needs to be let's just get back into the question of bike sharing ba bike sharing was again a, a very not that old but it is a phenomenon from the 90s that began with uh, uh, in Europe is kind of like uh, how do you enable sharing of bikes and then it was done in a sort of very crude ways early on with coins or tokens and locked stations and this and that and then a lot of early attempts failed but one of the researchers have been looking at this over time and said but if you have this resource of shared bikes what happens to them over time how do they reallocate themselves and of course travel patterns are diurnal which means that they're moving throughout the day and you have flux in and out of cities 
And so as a result, the worry is that the bikes would end up in the wrong place. And so balancing a bike network became a problem that needed solving. And uh, various algorithms have been proposed, and people have been you know, making them both uh, subjects of research and, and proprietary uh, knowledge. Um, and this was because systems were based on docks. The bike could only be parked at a dock, and the docks would fill up, so you'd have a, an issue with too many bikes uh, trying to park in one spot, and then you had problems with docks being empty. When we went to dockless, which only started about two, three years ago, and dockless meant that bikes wouldn't have to be parked in, in, in fixed locations. And people thought that this problem would actually get even worse because... Now bikes could really, uh, you know, go crazy, you know, go anywhere. I'll just, yeah, um, I'll just park it outside my house. <laughs> yeah, or inside my house. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so the, the problem then was felt to be even more intractable when dealing with uh, the allocation of free-floating bikes. Um, and the way the Chinese solved this problem is they just made more and more bikes. They actually oversaturated a market with bikes. So we went from, from hundreds to, to, to literally millions of bikes. So a city like Shanghai would have uh, something like close to 1.4 million bikes or something ridiculous like that. Um, so New York, for example, alone has 15,000 uh, uh, bikes as part of its city bike system. City bike in New York is 15, was a 10 for many years and and just expanded now to 15. You know, and so there's like three three more zeros to, to, to see what the yeah. number in China would be. Um, and, and so I, you know, I calculated actually what would New York look like at Chinese bike densities and I, I, I think I, I came up to about half a million bikes would be needed in New York alone to get the same density that most Chinese cities, of course. So imagine from that 15,000 bikes in, in Manhattan, but uh, 500,000 shared bikes in Manhattan. Um, is, it, that, is that actually being absorbed? So when you say that they, they're there and they exist on the street, is that, I mean, I, I know that there was a huge explosion of that, but is that, is that being sustained over time? Or is that so, just yeah, this a, is a, while this everybody is a, was trying to you know, we, solve it? We should spend an hour on the Chinese system, uh, and it, it's it's right, we'll come back to it's it marvels sure. <laughs> it's marvels and it's also it's sort of it's it's it pitfalls. Um, short answer though is uh, yes, uh, the, the the there might have been some oversupply, but short answer is that according to data released by both the companies themselves and the Chinese government, which again maybe is uh, subject to some inflation here, but supposedly the utilization is very strong, and the, the utilization is how many times does a bike get used per day? Uh, and so a very good balance system is going to see five to seven, like New York peaked at seven, I think. Uh, it may still be there now. And, you, know, you have peak days where uh, a bike is used eight times a day. Um, right. So if you have five, you're doing really well. And actually, I think China is between four and five right now. So it, 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 it's yeah, a very healthy number. It's a very healthy number. Now, again, we might we might be looking at a little bit of... A fudging going on there, but and certainly a lot of bikes were taken off the street, so they overdeployed. There was a correction. Uh, you see these bike mountains and so on. But again, given that 23 million bikes were deployed, what you're seeing in any picture of bike mountains is insignificant compared to what's in actual use. Um, so, um, so yeah, the, the the point I was making though about the uh, the the questions of balancing is that there's one approach which is sort of oversupply the market and, and the Chinese uh, operators say we want to make 
the bike as, 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 as like water. These are essential to life, and yet they are always available. And, um, and so that's how they want to think about it as a utility, uh, and the cities uh, encourage that. In China, of course, there are, there are some downsides, which is involving a clutter and using public land for a private company, which is a little bit, uh, a little bit problematic. But we'll get all into that. We'll sort of di- dive deeply into China, what works and what doesn't, what might work in other places and, and what won't. But, um, but the point about self-balancing networks, I think this, is, this was the great debate, if you, if you were in the, into the bike-sharing world for the last 10 years was like people were really anguishing over the question of balancing this network so the the the, the solution china came up with was like well let's make bikes free essentially we think that bikes are precious and expensive but what if we made them sort of disposable and uh, recyclable and and so that's what they've been trying to do the alternative which is perhaps the i think what you were alluding to is if we make them electric we can't quite think of them as disposables anymore but maybe we can make them intelligent, and that's the other approach. One is kind of bike spam, the other one is kind of smart bike. I think these are, these are the two models that are debated. And by bike, I could mean, of course, other, other modes as well. But the smart vehicle would be the one that knows where it is, is able to move by itself, is able to, to um, communicate back to headquarters, and, and is able to, therefore, allow itself to be managed better. I think a lot of the experimental uh, business models out there are about vehicle vehicle uh, architecture design, network architecture and design. Um, I think of segmentation in one way of micromobility along three three main axes. One is, is the availability of power in the vehicle and sort of imagine that as the y-axis. It sort of uh, goes from zero which is just a, a human-powered vehicle and cars are all the way at the top, which is, you know, available hundreds of horsepower per person. The other axis on the x-axis is the network. So are these vehicles shared or are these vehicles standalone and owned by an individual? So at zero, at the origin, you have essentially a cell, you know, human-powered, unshared vehicle or human-powered owned vehicle, which, is, which would be your bike at home. Um, and on, 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 you know, further out on the x-axis would be, again, a, a, a very broadly distributed network of bikes, which are not owned by, by the individuals, um, and furthermore, that they're intelligently uh, managed. And that's the more intelligence that's in the network, the further out you go on the x-axis. So again, x-axis is network, y-axis is power. So you can say that then uh, a very powerful vehicle that is in a very widely distributed network uh, would be the equivalent of cars or, or you know, powerful vehicles that are literally everywhere and, and uh, you hop in and out of them. It's kind of maybe the, the utopian view of a, a car sharing model, but there is a huge range in between from, from you know, uh, uh, very unpo- low power and, and, and owned vehicles to very high power and high shared vehicles. Now, there's a third axis which is how smart a vehicle itself is, and that that is the z-axis coming at you, and that would be uh, uh, that there's no onboard intelligence all the way to the thing being essentially self-aware. <laughs> so mm. uh, as you yeah. go down, as you go up this axis, so you have the network intelligence, the power axis, and then you have the, the z-axis coming at you, which is the the amount of um, 
intelligence in the vehicle, which could mean many things, by the way. It's not just awareness and, you know, being something like a, uh, 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 you know, speaking to you and, and, and interacting with you, but also things like, is it a platform for developers? Can developers actually enhance the product with apps? Can, can, uh, can the vehicle act as a, essentially an iPhone a class product um, which creates an ecosystem. So the, the idea is that the ecosystem is built through software development on top of the vehicle itself and, and it has some essential ability to, to become smarter over time, right? That's the essential value of a platform. And this is something yep. people have been talking about in computing circles now for, for decades. If anyone's listened to me before, what happened to phones is they just became smarter along that dimension. But in mobility, we have the, these other two dimensions, which is can these vehicles be, be harnessed uh, as a group? And, and that's the network dimension. And then the, the vertical, which is like, wow, how much power can we inject in this thing? So you inject power, you inject communications in their networks, and then you inject compute, right? You can think of these in terms of the components in the vehicle, battery on the y-axis, communications on the x-axis, and CPU on the z-axis, right? This is stuff that's on the shelf today. We got batteries, we got CPUs, we've got communications chips, all these things came into phones and computers. Now, how, what happens when you bring them into vehicles? It's all not all that radical, but the thing that happens when you, when you, when you segment this way and you ask, okay, so someone proposes a scooter with you know, a QR code, unlock, and it's got a throttle, but basically nothing else. Well, you can position that on this network versus someone like Lime is suggesting they're gonna make their own pods, which is a four-wheel vehicle that is sort of self-driving that, you know, is the next evolution of bike share. It's going to be sort of pod shared. Uh, okay, where's that on this matrix? And then finally someone says we're going to have a self-balancing robotic scooter slash Segway. What, what does that fit on this dimension? And this allows you to see how much overlap there is and sort of where's competition going. You could say, well, we want to maximize on all three dimensions. We have super smart networks, super smart vehicles, super powerful vehicle. Well, Maybe this works. Maybe you're overserving, and this is this is fundamentally the the debate and the argument and the timing question: is how fast do we get to the market product fit? How fast do we actually create something disruptive, which means it uh, it really applies to everyone, and it's not just a niche. So th that's really one way to think about it. Um, but when I hear about uh, new companies, new technologies, new products, new vehicles, I try to also think about how they fit in this matrix and then see how they might evolve and in what direction are they pushing. Like what's interesting with, with bikes is that um, when bike sharing began, the bike sharing in China is sort of very low intelligence on the vehicle, zero power on the vehicle itself. There's no electric power typically, but uh, they sort of go a little bit out on the network dimension. There's sort of sure. super, super sure. high yeah. numbers of vehicles there. Um, Alternatively, I think in the U.S. we're seeing more of an emphasis on powered vehicles, but uh, intelligence hasn't yet crept into much of that. Um, I'm, I'm coming from where I come from. Um, I'm thinking about this e-axis more, that an intelligent vehicle is going to be really powerful, that um, it creates platform effects, it creates, it creates software network effects, and then it creates all kinds of opportunities for developers. I think we'll see something happening there. So do you mean <clears throat> unpack that a little bit more? Because I, I certainly when I when I first saw the 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 nine bot um, example of itself driving around, and I thought, 
I'd love to have an Uber version of this where you effectively say, boom, I want a self-driving scooter to come and find me. And then you kind of think about the implications that that would be for, okay, one, it goes and charges itself. And then two, you, you have the, 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 you don't need to have as many of them deployed in order to serve that number because you can provide liquidity and your liquidity becomes not limited to how far people will be willing to walk to the scooter, but actually how far that scooter can drive to that person. And, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, that, that seems like a really viable model in my head, you know, as a... Yeah, I'm not here to sort of predict very well this stuff. I mean, I certainly can argue, but I think the, the self-balancing the robot, or let's say this, this idea, it's, it's attractive um, intellectually and I think technologically. Uh, what I'm struggling with, though, is practicality and the ability to cope with the chaos that often occurs in real-life transportation systems. One of the things that I believe the, the people who who are optimistic about technology, and this includes Google and people who are dreaming up uses for AI and so on. And the, 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 their optimism is, is, is valuable, but it's, the edge cases are often the things which determine success in markets. The, the problem would be, for example, game theory, where you think about how can this system be disrupted by uh, bad actors, um, how would it handle sabotage? You know, these things sound like, oh, well, that's just bad behavior. Well, bad behavior turns out to be very common. And so I worry a little bit about the, the leaps necessary to get to that world and that the path to get to that world will go through strange intermediaries, meaning that we get to a point where the scooter becomes more intelligent and the scooter evolves or the bicycle evolves with some intelligence on board, and then it actually has a system where it entices users to do the bidding for it. Meaning, since it sounds a little bit, I'm afraid I'm not very clear, but the idea of a hybrid system, you have intelligence on board, but then you also have incentives for users. So for example, the birds don't charge themselves, but they have an incentive where they pay $5 for a, a user to take the scooter home and charge it overnight. And so how, how did we get from, you know, a, a balancing problem, which is an algorithmic one, to sort of, oh, why don't we just bribe users to do it for us? You see? Yeah, and, yeah. Th- Interestingly enough, uh, there's, a, there's an excellent podcast with um, Jason Kalanikas. Um, he's a VC and he was one of the early investors in Uber, but he interviewed uh, the founder of Jump. And they were talking about the part of how to ensure that the bikes are recharged is by providing a $2 user credit to people to go and park them at some parts of the infrastructure around San Francisco. Um, and people yeah. who don't need the money, but they do it because it's sort of a gamification part of the, of the platform. Absolutely. And so uh, what, I, what I found out, and I've, I've, I'm very familiar with the operations of uh, uh, the bike sharing system in Zurich called Smide. And they have an electric bike sharing system, um, very similar to Jump. They've been operating longer than, than Jump has actually. And the, the bike sharing, um, the electric bikes are very powerful. They're so-called speed pedelecs, so they go up to 45 kilometers an hour, and they have very big batteries on board from 800 to 900 uh, watt-hours, so almost one kilowatt-hour per bike. Now, the question for them has been also how to charge the bikes, and what the solution has been is first, 
Well, we have swappable batteries, so you can unlock the battery compartment and the service person can go in and, and drive by the, where it's parked and then just swap the battery out very quickly. It takes 30 seconds to go to the next one and so on. So it, it seemed like a, a nice way of kind of minimizing the, the charging uh, time and penalty. However, it turns out that there was a more clever way of doing it, which is to put up charging stations in particular locations and attract users to go there and plug the bikes in. The, the infrastructure is a lot easier than the, than the car park, car charging stations. These are much less power required. But what they discovered is that, that uh, the businesses where those stations were located, or the businesses around there would benefit from the additional traffic of people coming to park the bikes there. And actually, the businesses can be encouraged to pay for the location of, of a, a charge point. So imagine turning a disadvantage of saying, well, how do we deal with charging? And going from a cost problem, because we've got to send people out there to maintain the state of charge on the bikes. So we've got to put that into our cost structure to saying, well, no, that's actually a revenue source. So, you know, that is phenomenal. That is a sort of dream of, of uh, entrepreneurs that you take a disability having to charge a vehicle to making it a revenue source. And I have a similar thought about other disabilities that are associated with micromobility, for example, helmets. If you think about helmets and like, oh, everybody's saying, oh, that's a real drag. How do we deal with helmets? How do we get users to, uh, you know, share them? We can't do that. They're too personal. Uh, how do we get users to carry them with them. Well, that would be painful. Can we get the city to stop requiring them? Well, that's not always a good idea. You should wear a helmet. And you, you just dance around the problem. And how about making the helmet so cool that everybody wants one? Then you start to think about it. Then you start to say, wait a minute. That space in the helmet is really valuable space, isn't it? Isn't that what AR and VR is all about? Isn't that what wearable technology is all about? Isn't that what Beats did? They took something which was a, uh, you know, like who wants a headphone? You're going to have to carry it with you everywhere. It's a pain. The cord gets all tangled up. Everybody hated headphones, and suddenly they made them into a fashion item. And something you wear around your neck and you're proud of, and everybody wants to have a Beats headphones. And so you took the disadvantage of headphones and made them into a huge, huge hit, and billions of dollars were created as a result. And so you can imagine doing the same thing for helmets, and there's a helmet out there now available through the Apple stores where you use your watch, it detects the position of your, of your hand, then it creates um, turn signals for the helmet. So, so if you stick your hand out as you would on a bike, they signal your, your intentions of turning, it, it starts to create um, left, right, and, and even stop signals so that the safety is enhanced uh, for the rider. So you can see how this is not going to be easy to forecast because when you discover difficulties and you say, well, let's just throw technology at the problem, it's both technology and understanding of human behavior that, that you can harness and also understanding of the environments around the vehicle. So like I said, you, you, you start to leverage uh, the notions of, well, we can drive traffic to, to certain locations. We can in, encourage uh, businesses to actually participate because it, it benefits them. We can, we can encourage the sense of, of pride of, of individuals. So, so digging into the human psychology to turn a problem into a benefit. And um, that is what entrepreneurship is all about. It's, it's not just breaking 
new ground on technology, but, but rather also understanding human nature and understanding systems and, and putting it all together into a package that suddenly resonates. And afterwards, you sort of look back and say, well, of course, then that's, that's a natural thing, right? You make it look easy. Kind of have this in an in a fabric of something where there would be as you say a potential for you're really replacing walking so you have mm. to be it has to kind of be in an environment where walking was even a default means of getting around which actually when you think about it is in a lot of cities not necessarily the case um and you, the other point as well is around cabins um or or like weather weather protection um, because mm. that's where i can see that like to your point it's really in places where it's really sunny that works really well but um, I'm in Ireland. It sucks. The weather's the weather here is terrible. It's meant to be the middle of summer and it's raining every day. You know, so mm-hmm, yeah, um, and windy too, probably. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but but um, that's actually. Have you ever seen the the Lit Motors C1, the um the the auto the auto balancing version of that of the cabin bicycle that they were trying to build? Um, it was a, it was a Silicon yeah. Valley company. Yeah, Liz Motors. They, I think they got acquired by Apple or something happened there. No, no, they were in they were in talks to be acquired oh, by Apple. In talks, um, but in talks. Yeah, yeah, it never happened. But I, I had a pre-order. I still have a pre-order. I never got my money back. Um, uh, but but for but that idea of having like a two-wheeled um, gyro bike. While I was in China, actually, Ying Lingyun um, uh, Intelligence, which is a it's a Chinese-backed company they came out and announced that they were going to be building one of these effectively like a clone of the lit motors interestingly the people who had backed it were sequoia now sequoia uh, have backed and are leading the round the latest round for bird and also had previously backed ninebot and segway so Hmm. there's there's this really interesting thing there of like Obviously, they can see something coming down the pipe where something's going to, you know, to your point, we're waiting for that iPhone moment. We don't know what it's going to look like. But I can see there being this whole emergence of this class of vehicles for autonomous self-balancing. The trajectory, what we talk about is is in disruption theories that you begin with some foothold market and then you you have product market fit and then you begin to evolve along the dimensions of performance that that users seem to resonate resonate with and and so the the when you when you we so we, so we you you start out by asking what what's missing i think safety is the first thing and and to to address that you you get to uh, i think the the rather than make it heavy and and protected you you want to throw technology at it in terms of sensors in terms of intelligence and all the things that we talk about cars becoming smarter with 
sensing and intelligence, we can see those things coming to micromobility much quicker. And, and so part of the innovation will be on the mechanical engineering side, as you pointed out, that gyroscopes, uh, uh, fairings or, or covers, um, and, and other forms of physical, physical innovations, but also in terms of software and intelligence, which would empower the user and prevent accidents, if you will. And that's, that's, these, there's a great potential there. I think people who are you know, looking at unit economics today, are, that's just, that's just uh, table stakes. That's just getting in the game. Once yeah, this starts moving forward, it's going to first evolve rapidly on the product side. And we're going to see magical improvement in the, in the performance of the product. And then it's going to evolve into platforms. And to, so, so, that, so that the experience and time you spend with these vehicles is going to be monetized or, or made more and more valuable somehow. And, and it's going to integrate then with other things. And so, so the other dimension of improvement is the network. So the network would allow vehicles to interoperate, the, certainly with public transit, but also you know, even to the point where uh, ride-sharing uh, services will, will uh, uh, engage uh, micromobility users by saying, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a lift. Um, and then we'll drop you off at a micromobility device or vice versa, or we'll, we'll use our, our big vehicles to balance the small vehicles, which is already happening. Um, and so those, those integrations between different systems and the, the creation of markets for, for handoffs, and uh, I sometimes call this tokenization or sort of the breaking the problem into tokens and then, and then being able to trade these tokens so you, you actually create a whole new economy of of um, uh, uh, of transfers, the economy of transfers, so that it's not a um, a single entity that dominates all transport. So you go to the to Uber for your for your for your micro. Well, again, this is perhaps idealistic. Maybe we'll become that. <laughs> you, you never know. It's gonna may, may turn out like like uh, like Amazon for for retail or or Google for search. Uh, but you could also end up more a quote unquote open or modular where you have essentially plug compatibility between the different modes. And, yeah, and so, absolutely. so this is fascinating. I think what you're just, what we're just doing now is scratching the surface on, on all the potential that exists for taking something, which is so simple today, uh, just an electric motor with a battery attached to a couple of wheels. How simple can you get? Well, you can, that's what a scooter is today. It's, it's, you know, we've gone through five iterations, as I said, you know, everything from a Segway, which was too early, to a hoverboard, which was not very useful, uh, to, uh, uh, to the, the boosted board, which has still required quite a bit of coordination on the part of the user, and it was not for everybody. Um, and now we have these scooters, which actually seem to be like everybody can handle these. Okay, at least maybe not no, not so many old people using them yet, but uh, you know we'll we'll see. And at the same time, by the way, coming from above, you have cycling, you have you have the evolution of electric bicycles, which are I think more European centric. Uh, regular cycling is more China centric, and scooters seem to be a more of a U.S phenomenon and and again uh, from from history we had similar uh, uh, Galapagos situation where Japan was different than Europe than the different than the United States a lot of that had to do with regulation and the early years of, of cellular telephony so the US had multiple standards it was very chaotic 
uh, somewhat backward in terms of of uh, data on the network. Japan was very advanced on data, but didn't have uh, a great ecosystem. Uh, Europe had great devices, but didn't have and, and and a unified network called GSM, which meant that that users were were you know started using. Uh, text messaging very, very quickly. and uh, uh, But the U.S. then evolved quickly into BlackBerry and then into iPhone because of software and, 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 and sort of trumped everything else. But again, that's not to say history plays, uh, you know, is repeats. It's, it's, but, but what we're seeing is the rhyming here that the fact that you do have uh, uh, strange, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, sort of... Uh, um, Ecosystems or or um, ecologies, I should say, ecologies. Yes, you you, yep. you have sure. different ecologies in different parts of the world, uh, based on the 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 you know indigenous flora and fauna, right? So you you have you have the flora and fauna of companies, people, uh, cities, histories, cultures, uh, and then of course regulation, which is influenced by all of those things, and so things bloom there. That wouldn't bloom elsewhere, and 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 so U.S. given its its rather perverse uh, 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 monoculture of automobile uh, uh, transport as the only only form of transport, it, it kind of almost pu- pu- pushed the uh, uh, pushed everything else out. But but you know the crack in the the crack in the concrete, the crack in 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 the pavement was the. Uh, was the scooter, which took you know and, and and began to flourish there. So so even the absence of uh, of uh, of an ecology as the U.S. Uh, has still allowed the 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 blooming of a particular species, which is what we see there. It's not now. Will these begin to cross borders and and will will they will they begin to to dominate as as indeed a single phone phone form factor ended up really dominating. Uh, the the world, which is the the, the touch phone, touch touch uh, uh, screen touched uh, phones we have, both as Android and, and iOS. So that's the question before us. I think that the the exciting thing is that if you just dabble in this slightly, you you see all these opportunities. Wow! If if you're focused on software, you see software opportunities. If you're focused on hardware. You see great opportunities there, and if you're focused on service and jobs to be done or design, you see opportunities there. It's as if we're on the on the cusp of a, a, of, a of a truly marvelous uh, supernova of innovation, and and that's that's what I sensed early on was why it attracted me so much. So so I think the conversation goes on, right? I think we we have uh, we've tried today to talk about scooters uh, to. Get our hands around the problem, and again, by the time you hear this, this may have moved on already, but because it's moving so fast. But but um, but yeah, it's a rich history. Lots 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 of uh, uh, lots of anecdotes here, and uh, let's uh, let's look forward to the next version of this show. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much, Horace. Really appreciate it. <laughs>